0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. It's from 1
1: Peter chapter one. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Pray with me. Father, we are gathered here together as your people, and we're going to consider a, a psalm today, a, a text from your Bible. And we hear you tell us here in First Peter that our minds are to be set on something, that our minds are to be controlled by something, and, and the psalmist is going to touch on it again, and throughout all of the Scripture, in fact, and throughout all of what you say to us and what you do with us, you intend to set us on something. set our hope on the grace that is coming, to be mindful of You and to not be given over to the passions of our former ignorance. So Father, my prayer this morning is that You would commission Your Spirit to run through our midst here and grab a hold of those passions in us, those bents, those, those emotions, those feelings, those thoughts, those concerns, those desires, and turn them what we used to follow, and turn them wholly to be set on You, fastened to You. Give us firm conviction and change us, I pray. There is a world of difference between knowing what should be and having it actually be. And I pray, Lord, move us across that gap to make us a people, individuals, and to make us a church that is set on You, fixed on You, hopes in You, has minds prepared for action because this is a war. Give grace to us and help us with this. Father, I pray that for myself that You would give grace to me even at this moment to have my mind set on You. Those here who are my brothers and sisters in this room right now reach and touch us, draw us in, give us focus to give attention to Your Word that we would grow. Those here who do not yet belong to You, convict them, show them that, show them light and hope in Christ. A hundred different tasks. You know them best, Father. So I I pray, would You please act and build Your church and bring glory to Your Son. It's in His name that I pray for the glory of Jesus and for the good of the people of Jesus. Amen. I saw a movie about a week or so ago, an ordinary Hollywood movie, nothing special. As I watched it, completely a godless movie. Not, not overtly terrible, but just no sense of God even existing at all. A typical movie. And as I watched that movie, I found myself thinking, that's kind of, you know, kind of neat. I kind of like that. Or this is attractive to me here. Wouldn't it be nice if... You ever had that experience? You find yourself being drawn after something very, very subtly and not overtly terrible, but just liking it. I know you have, maybe in a movie, or maybe you just look over the, next door, look over the fence to the next-door neighbor, and you see him taking his boat behind his great big SUV with his perfect family to the lake again this weekend. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice? Oh, that, that looks great. I, oh, how wonderful would that be? Or, or maybe you live in this state single, how hard is that? As everybody in class and everybody in the dorm and everybody in the workplace is going on dates and going to the prom and getting married and having a family and you, because you have kept your heart pure and are concerned, are home alone again on Friday. Wouldn't it be nice if, what's what's wrong with a spouse? What's wrong with a date? Wouldn't it be nice if What's wrong with a boat? What's wrong with a little bit of vacation time? And you look at the neighbor or you look at the movie or or your roommate and they've just got a life that works and everything is so good. Why can't I? What's wrong with that? To be able to enjoy myself a little bit here, to have a little bit of money in my pocket, a little bit of status. I mean, theoretically, God is on my side. But how come they have all of the good stuff? And I lost my job, and here I am at church again. Well, they're out having fun. You ever had that experience? That's the issue addressed in Psalm 73, the text that we're going to look at this morning. And we've all encountered this to one degree or another. Maybe it's just a light little thing like watching a movie. Not a whole lot of draw there, but just kind of a little wondering. Or maybe there's some significant angst in it. As you suffer, and all those folks out there have it all without God. We have faced this, and the psalmist gives voice to this question, and he answers it. In a way that what's difficult about this text is he's answering this issue, and the answer goes boom and goes to all of life. Because it is about everything. It is about all of life, about what all of what God is doing. It is about all of Christianity. It is a huge answer that comes in just one little passage about one little issue. So this is a very important psalm for us to think about and look at. And over the next few weeks, we will be looking at a few psalms. This, this last week, I finished the book of Deuteronomy. And we'll be going in a few weeks to the book of First Corinthians. A book that talks a lot about the church will help us with a number of different things, I believe. But in in the middle here, as I have done before, we're going to take a little bit of time to kind of pause between major books to look at some psalms. We're going to be looking specifically at some psalms from book three of the Psalter. The psalms are are poetry. They're songs. Sometimes sung or recited. And as poetry, they they communicate sometimes in a little bit different way for us. Maybe a little way that's unusual. But that's kind of the beauty of them. They they voice questions and answer them in, in beautiful and intriguing ways. They speak to things that are actually in the hearts of people. Like the man who wrote Psalm 73. Brings them out. He's going to address them. So my hope is that God would speak to us in this psalm. Maybe give encouragement to you or conviction to you as is needed. Let me read all of Psalm 73 and then I'll pass back through it to make sure that we understand the flow of thought and then make a couple of observations. Psalm 73 beginning in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff. And speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression, they set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. And therefore, as people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, How can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. And washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when You rouse Yourself, You despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward You. Nevertheless, I am continually with You. You hold my right hand. You guide me with Your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Psalm 73. The psalm has two very distinct halves. And the first half begins with verse 1 with the, the psalmist stating for us his official theology. Truly. This is the way it is. This is what I believe. This is what I acknowledge. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. However, that kind of setup says that, you know, what's about to follow is going to call all that into question. I know this is the case. God is good to us. And yet, for me, I'm stumbling. I was slipping. I'm falling. As I'm trying to stand and to affirm that which I believe, I'm falling here because I just look around and I see, what does he see, verse 3? I see the prosperity of the wicked, of the arrogant. Notice how he equates there the structure of the sentence, equates the arrogant and the wicked. At the heart of wickedness is pride. I'm in chargeness, I'm godness. And he looks at them. And he says, I know who they are, and I'm still envious of them because they have everything They prosper. They have it all. And then he goes on to elaborate in 4 and 5. They not only have wealth, they don't suffer. They are fat and sleek, which is a compliment. Speaking of abundant food. They can eat good, rich food. So they're, they're healthy. They, they've got all that they need. They don't know trouble. They're not afflicted, plagued. Maybe maybe referring to disease, maybe just trouble. But either way, they don't have it like everybody else does. And so, verses 6 to 9, they are proud and violent. They strut around the earth, acting like and speaking like with their tongues seizing hold of heaven and the earth. Acting like they own the place, like they're in charge, they rule everything, and they they rebuke, they poke fun at, they ridicule people like me who don't and aren't. They adorn themselves as they wear it like, like garments and jewelry. It's all over them. They're up and I'm down. And it's so extensive that even the people of God look at them and say, wow, you know, they don't find fault in them. There's something attractive there. Even when these people say, how does God, they even revile God. Does God know anything? Even with that, the the pull is so strong because they have everything. Even then the people of God are drawn after them. Behold, verse 12, a summary. Here it is. Here's what the wicked are like. (laughs) Always at ease, having everything. Raking it in so fast they can't even count it all. I have read the law. And I know there are supposed to be two paths. A path of of blessing, you follow God and and He blesses you. And then a path of cursing, you don't follow God and He doesn't. But something's not... I'm starting to wonder about all that. As I'm looking around out here, I think that it's all been in vain that I have kept my heart pure. You hear this? What a waste of time. I'm starting to think that. I can't say it out loud. If I spoke like this, it would be a betrayal against the children of God. But I sit in the fourth row and I think it. Because look around, people. They have everything. I have nothing. Whatever the thing is, maybe it's money, maybe it's health, maybe it's power and prestige. And I'm, to try to, I'm trying to figure that out, why that is, and it's wearing me out because it doesn't make any sense. I try to figure all this out and it is wearisome to me. Verse 16. You ever been there? To some degree or another? I think that most of us, to some degree or another, have been there. Some of us are there right now. And it wears you out trying to figure out. I'm I'm following God. Why do they have the good life? Troubles Him. It isn't worth it, I don't think. Troubles Him. Until, verse 17... Until he goes into the sanctuary of God and sees their end, he sees where this road that he's tempted to be drawn after he sees where that road goes, to the end, that is to judgment. Something changes in him. He didn't see it before when he was embittered in soul. He talks about I was at this point where I was embittered, and my my heart was pricked. I was I was being an idiot. He says I was ignorant and brutish like a beast towards God. I mean. Something's changed, and Now he sees the folly of where he was. But he was there. And even while I was there, though, nonetheless, God, you're still with me. You're still there holding my hand and carrying me along. And now I see something completely different. He sees God now, 23, 4, 5, 6, the one who fills his heart and upholds him, the only thing he wants. There's a great change that's happened there. And so in 27 and 28, behold, here's another summary. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. A change from his first assessment. And as for me, now, not my feet are slipping, but now it is good for me to be near God. I've made him my refuge. And I look now out at a world where not where I'm getting ripped off but where I see abundant works of God that I want to talk about. That's the psalm. Psalm 73. Two halves. Really a, a, a problem and a resolution sort of set up that turns in the middle. I'm going to spend most of our time this morning looking at the, the last half of that. I think the problem is kind of clear. So I'm going to look at, at the resolution side Half of this, and then, a, then a kind of what turned, how that turn happened. I'm going to make two observations on those two points. So here's here's the first observation. And as I state this, I, I think it, I think it will become obvious that this just becomes big, pretty quickly. First point: God Himself is the great good. Gift from God to his people. God does indeed give good. He is indeed a good God, and the good thing that he gives is himself. God gives God. Bless God. Verse 1 is right. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God is good. He does good. He gives good. He makes for us good all the time. But the psalmist's problem and our problem is that we misunderstand good. He thinks and we think that good is the prosperity of verse 3. The health, the power of 4, 5 and following. And we look out at that and we see the problem arises and we see, I'm not healthy, wealthy, and wise like all of them are. What's the deal? Because that is what we think good is and we don't have it. That's where the problem comes from. And in the midst of that, we, we must remember something. God Himself is our greatest good. The psalmist sings it. When he changes, this is what he sings out. Which means that We're supposed to sing this. The psalmist comes to realize when he leaves his brutish ignorance, Oh, what have I in heaven other than you? What have I on earth other than you? You're the one I want. You're what I always wanted, what I was seeking after. You are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He comes to that realization. God is the strength that upholds our hearts even when our hearts fail. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. While the heart is failing, God is the strength of the heart. That's why we want Him. God is the portion for people. Portion. Think of, think of perhaps like an inheritance. This is yours, and it's what satisfies you. Or think of perhaps food. Somebody scooping out food. Here's your portion, and it fills you. God is the one who fills. God is the one who upholds. Because of the kind of creatures we are. He made human beings. Who we are, we we are different than everything else that He made. He made all the planets. He made all the plants and rocks and trees and everything you look at. But we are different. It's complicated. I'll say it very briefly. We are made in the image of God. Which does not mean that we look like God. Or that we will become God. Or that He was once us. We are made in the image of God. It means that we in some way correlate to Him very differently than everything else out here. And to put it simply, it means that we have built into us longings, Desires, abilities, needs that resemble him very uniquely, and are in the end ultimately only matched by him. I'll say that again. To be in the image of God means that, simply put, we have in us by his design, by his making of us, various needs and abilities and desires and and bents, and all that resembles Him and is ultimately only completed by Him. Because He is them in their fullness. An example to try to make this clear. I'll pick just one thing. We all, every human being on the planet, wants peace. We define it differently, but we all want peace. Peace. Because God is peace. There's something in us that matches Him. He is peace. We want peace. Not that God behaves peacefully. Well, he often does that. He is peace. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. God is a triune God. Three persons, one God. And those three persons have always, for eternity past, always related to one another in perfect harmony and union and joy and love. They are, he is, at peace. Always. He defines it. He is it. Then when he made us, we had that echo in our lives and long for it and try to find it everywhere we possibly can. But every piece that we find on earth always passes, always fades, because He is the only one that completely fulfills it. This is all pointing at Him. He's the one we want. Another example to make it a little more clear. If you're a grandparent, and if you're not a grandparent, you'll understand this, but you're a grandparent, you've got a granddaughter, a grandson. Would you rather spend an hour with a picture that she drew or with her? Why? You know the answer. It's obvious. But why? The picture's darling. I mean, you've seen pictures that she's drawn before. They're just, oh, they're precious. So cute, funny. It's got her thumbprint on the side where she smeared the paint. It's obviously pointing at her. It obviously reminds you of her. So why would you set it aside in an instant if you could spend an hour with her? She's the one it's pointing to. She's the fulfillment of it. She's the one you actually want. And I can't put all that into words, but you know it's true. And that's why God is the one you actually want. I can't put all of it into words, but it's it's real. It's there. You don't want peace down here without Him. You want peace down here because it reminds you of Him. It's what He made into you and He would fulfill it perfectly if you could only have Him. He is the portion that would fill you up and satisfy you forever. He is the strength that would uphold your heart if you could only find His hands and rest in them. He'd hold you up no matter what happens. The greatest of all possible goods is God. And when you meet Him and you experience and that fact becomes crystal clear. And we sing about it with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven, but there's nothing else that I want other than you. Nothing else here I want other than you. You are it. Oh God. And so if He is to love us, if He is to love you, to do good to you, to bless you. He does not do that by only giving you a snack. He does it by setting out the whole feast and inviting you to the table. Sometimes wise parents say no to snacks so as not to spoil dinner, right? Sometimes lesser goods are set aside so as to make the feast All the more desirable, all the more tasty, and all the more consumed. Which is to say, let me leave the metaphor behind to be be clear. We must not, we cannot judge the goodness of God by whether or not He gives us the stuff of the world. We must and should judge the goodness of God by whether or not He gives us Himself. And at the cross, in the wisdom and power and grace of God, He has done just that. worship should cause you to, to worship? If you're tracking, it should cause you to worship because He has done something. God the Father sent God the Son to the earth to take on a body 1 Peter 3 talks about this explicitly. Christ suffered once for sins. He came to take on a body to suffer on the cross. The righteous for the unrighteous. The Holy One for people like you. Unrighteous. Why? How does the verse finish? Anybody know it? Don't shout it out. But do you know it? Not just that He might forgive you. Not just that the wrath of God might be removed off of you, or propitiated, satisfied, though that's true, but the verse goes all the way to the end. Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. That's the point. God has done something huge. Sent God the Son to the earth for the purpose of bringing together unrighteous people like you and me and this infinite greatest good God. All by His design, all by His power, all by His glorious grace, bless the name of this God. He is good. Oh, He's good. And He does good to you, Jeshurun, His people. He is there and He is enough. He is doing something. He has done something marvelous at the cross and then from that day in your life, every day after that, providentially, He is working together all things in your life. All things in your life for this good. All things. It is... This is not a world in which stuff happens and God discovers it along with you. Kind of weeps with you about it and wishes it could be otherwise, but that's not the kind of world this is. He's sovereign. Nothing comes to you. Nothing hits your life hard or good. Nothing comes to you that has not come through His hands and by His wise design has been decided to be. Nothing. This, this is big. This is what is going on in your life every single day in everything. This is, this is why I say this little bitty psalm goes like this, because it becomes everything. It becomes every moment of your life. Every experience that you have. He's working all the things of each one of our days Sometimes giving and sometimes taking away. Sometimes building up and sometimes tearing down. Sometimes sending sunshine and sometimes rain. Moments of of intense pleasure right on the heels of deep pain. All of it for your good. Not to give you more money or better health. All of it for your great good. He is so good, He won't settle with that. All of it to connect you back to the One that you most deeply want. The One for whom you were made. All of it to bring you into the deeper, fuller, wider, longer, higher experience of God. Bless His name. Bless His name for that goodness. Now, I I realize I say those things. I, I talk about. I, I, I put intense pleasure on the on the heels of deep pain, and I can just say that. But I imagine that somebody's sitting here at the moment in deep pain. Easy for you to say, Steve. Yeah, I, I know it is easy. It, it is easy for me to say. I'm not at the moment. I don't know what happened five minutes from now on the way home. But at the moment, I'm not in deep pain, and maybe you are. What? What do I say about that? Well, to a degree, I I say I don't understand. I know what he's doing, why he did it like this, I, I don't know. None of us do. He is God, the secret things belong to him. But I do know what he's doing because he has told us. I imagine that 95% of the people in this room know Romans 8.28. I just alluded to it a few times. Do you realize it's true? It's in the Bible. It's true. And it is not the case that he's finding stuff and then working that out. He's in it all from start to finish for your good, for the purpose of bringing you into the experience of God. Weaning you off of the cotton candy and the snack food to give you a feast. I don't know why he chose to do it like this in your life right now. I don't know. We never will. That's not the point. God consistently says, Trust me. Have I not shown you my character? I have. Have I not? Have I not shown you that I am good? Have I not shown you that I am love? Have I not myself laid down my life for you and called you my friends? I am not out to get you. I'm not. Trust me. Truly, I am good to you, Israel. I long to teach you So that you would find the joy and the depth of what this is about and that you would not just know you're supposed to sing 25 and 26, but you would actually sing it. That it would come out of you. That it would be in you naturally and come out of you. That you would look and say, what have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing I desire other than you because I have tasted and seen that you were good. And when, not if, When my flesh and my heart fail, I find you to be my strength and my portion. Thank you. That is His love to you and He is really hard-bent on making that happen for your good. For your good. He longs to say that to you and you need to know this. This has to fill your mind if you're going to resist the temptation in 2 to 16. You you fight the temptation in 2 to 16 by saying, look at all the stuff they have. <laughs> look what I have. Not, I shouldn't want it, I shouldn't want it, I shouldn't want it, I shouldn't want it, but look what I have. A- and then the glorious thing happens. Filled up with Him, satisfied with Him. If you buy a boat, you don't really care. And you're free to do it or not. If it seems wise under the counsel of God. You must know this. This this must fill your mind. You can see those those folks that look to be, oh, always at ease and and filled with increasing with riches. And left to ourselves, our hearts are inclined to go that way. But he, He fights that with truth. And this is a truth that would set you free from envy and set you free from the burden of wondering if it's all been in vain. It has not been. You have a great, full blessing. And that path actually does lead to an end. There's a truth here. God is good, and He is the greatest of all goods, and He gives it to you as people. But the second observation has to go with that. There is theology. we have been talking about some theology that comes out of this, and some theology that we have to know. But this—it's a theology that is best processed in a particular environment. It's true everywhere, but it's best processed, best digested and taken in in a particular environment, which is what the second observation gets at. So here's the second point. For your own everlasting good, continually go into the sanctuary of God. Continually go to the sanctuary. Go camp there. The, The whole psalm turns at verse 17, is it not? But that, that's where the turn comes. That's obvious to us. That the word until, whoosh, that, that's where stuff turns. He's struggling, slipping, having a difficult time until he goes into the sanctuary of God and discerns their end and realizes that they, in fact, are the ones slipping. They, in fact, are the ones standing on the slope that leads down to a cliff that drops. There's... Something did he intellectually know that before? Yeah, he calls them the wicked. He knows who they are. He knew that before. This is not new information, but it gets processed differently in this environment of being in the sanctuary. Truth becomes vivid and supernaturally real. So so what is the sanctuary? Well, in the Psalmist Day, obviously the sanctuary was the temple. Nathan alluded to this earlier. Before the temple was built, it would have been a tent traveling through the wilderness. And then when they came into the land, eventually they built a great big building in the city of Jerusalem. And while the building had various elements and various practices there that would remind one of God and remind one of, of spiritual truth, the essence of the temple is presence. You've got a, a country, a city, courts, courts a building, rooms, and in the very center, right there, in the very middle of all of that, the presence of God. That's at the heart of the temple, the sanctuary. So what he's saying, essentially, is until I went into the presence of God and I beheld their end. Which is why, verse 28, it's good for me to be near God. He's picking up on the same thought. It's good for me to be near God because while I'm there, my thought keeps being refreshed. It doesn't grow stale. He wants to always be near God. He's made God his refuge. He's, he's camping there. He doesn't want to stray. He changes from a person who's thinking this is all in vain and in the presence of God, he says, ah, oh, this is real. I'm tasting it. I know it. I experience it. What you see and how you experience it depends on being near to God in His sanctuary. Hiding yourself in His presence. Which is why I say, for your own good, continually go into the sanctuary of God. How? Well, I'm going to say a thing or two about that in a moment, but I want to stop here and ask you to ask yourself a question. Do you care? It would be helpful to be honest about that. Because whatever I'm going to say is going to involve something on your part. I mean, you know what I'm going to say. But whatever I'm going to say is going to involve something on your part. But if you don't really care, I, I don't need to bother. Do you care to come to rest and live in the presence of God so as to see what you already know, but to see it more clearly and to have it grip you in a deeper way that changes you. Do you want that or can you not be bothered? Which is it? If you look at this psalm from a slightly different angle, another way this is a huge psalm, this is growth in the Christian life. Start out with some stuff you know, but you're really strongly pulled towards all this out here. And as you meet God and, and, and abide in His presence, you get weaned off of this and come to find Him as the center of your heart. your sustaining joy. And then you want to be close to Him forever that's the process, I could put a word on that, that's discipleship, that's sanctification, that's growth. So essentially what I'm asking you is a big question. Do you care to grow? Or are you content just knowing some stuff? Which is it? I'm pretty convinced that we, by and large, know plenty of stuff. which doesn't make a bit of difference in his life as he looks at the next-door neighbor taking his boat to the lake again. As he gets the diagnosis from the doctor and is angry about it and wondering what is the point, God, you're supposed to. It doesn't make a bit of difference in his life that he knows that God is good. Do you want to grow out of just knowing to actually experiencing yes or no? I pray... I pray the answer is yes. And if you want that, then you'll need to know how to draw near to him. And what I have to say is not complicated. I've said it a hundred times. What's the sanctuary right now for us? Is it a building? Is it this place? No. It's not any place, and it is every place. Because, you need to think about this in concentric circles, at the center of it is God where has God, Nathan alluded to this also, where has God placed his name on Jesus? We're talking about drawing near to Jesus. Well, not physically, of course, spiritually. So what we're talking about is living and walking and, and moment by moment abiding in God the Holy Spirit. You draw near to God supernaturally, spiritually. There are not three steps to do this. There are means that He must use. We can't make it happen, but we can pick up the means. So, let me be very practical about this. Today is Sunday, the Sabbath. Why did God make the Sabbath? For you. Not for Him. Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He made it for you. To give you a chance to rest. Which fundamentally does not mean to give you a chance to watch the NFL. Doesn't mean that. Now, I don't care if you watch the NFL. Or whatever. That's not, that's not what I'm getting at. Do you understand my point though? What, what he has made the Sabbath for is a chance for you to rest, to come into his presence and be with him in a way that is longer and deeper than what you have the other six days of the week when you are hurried and rushed. So today's Sunday. If you five minutes ago decided, yes, I care, I want that, let me just suggest. Take some time today. Set aside. Try an hour. That's new for you. Try an hour. All by yourself with only your Bible. Not even another Christian book. Just take only your Bible. And take it. And as you open it up, pray, God, I cannot make you show yourself to me. You're God, I'm not. But I know that You speak in Your Word and You delight to fill me with the greatest of all good, Yourself. And so I say, please, now come, open the eyes of my heart and help me to see You. Show me wonderful things in Your law. And you can pick any passage. Would You commune with me now and let the words come off the page and give me life and let my words as I pray not... Bounce off some invisible ceiling, but penetrate it and actually meet you. And would you speak back? Please, God, I'm coming to you. I want that. I believe I need it more than I need air right now. And then open it up and read it. And as I mentioned several weeks ago, just ask the text a couple of questions. What do I see about God here? What do I see about me here? And how do I need to respond to that? You're dealing with God in His Word and praying and asking Him supernaturally to bring you into His presence, to come and hold your hand, to guide you and give you counsel. That's it. It's not complicated, but it does take time and a desire to actually sit in it. Not to just check in for three minutes and find that nothing happened, so I'll move on. The game's about to start. And I hope it's clear that what I'm saying here is for your own everlasting good, come and do this, not just this afternoon, always. Always. If I pray, I mean, I hope long for us as a people to catch a vision for the fact that we waste so much time. If you could just write down all the time you spend watching TV, all the time you spend listening to talk radio with non-Christians talking, I don't care if they are Republicans, (laughs) get that. With non-Christians talking and filling your mind. At sport. Amusing ourselves to death. To steal a phrase. If we could catalog all the time we waste when we could be beseeching God to bring us His presence, I think we would be grieved because we'd see it as, I lost something. I missed something. I've been snacking and now I've spoiled my dinner. May you be grieved by that. And may, may, may it motivate you for your own great good to pursue Him. And to live in His presence. God is indeed good to us, His people. He has been good at the cross and He is good day after day after day. Giving Himself to you, inviting you to come into His presence for your own good. Go. Let me pray. Father, I I pray that You would move Your children to not be satisfied. To not be satisfied with just the good things that You give, but to want You above them. Would You move and convict Your children if necessary to not gorge themselves on the things You give to feast on You, to come into Your presence. Please move Your people like that, Lord. Lord, Please call those who are not your people to invite them to come and eat and be filled. And Lord, I pray that you would build us as a church to be a people who gather together and create opportunity to experience your presence. You say that where two or three are gathered together, you're there in our midst. Would you motivate us to, to capitalize on that? To be people who fellowship with each other over you and not just over the weather and sports. Lord, thank You for Your great goodness. Thank You for being our strength and our portion. And I pray, Lord, do more good, more gracious good to us to draw us into Your presence and show us this reality. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.